health care professional who would like to hear from experts in the field of pain care? Or maybe you are caring for a family member who is experiencing pain or health challenges and you would like more information. Perhaps you are a healthcare educator who wants to better inform your students or staff. Then you are in the right place. This is Faces of Pain Care, the show where we interview experts in the field of pain care. And now, the co-creator of the Wong Baker Faces Pain Rating Scale and the executive director of the Wong Baker Faces Foundation, Connie Baker. Okay. Well, welcome to Faces of Pain Care. I'm Connie Baker, and today I'm excited to be talking with Michelle Rathman, founder of Impact Communications, Inc. Impact is a leader in healthcare strategy and communications specializing in critical access and rural health systems, hospitals, clinics, and provider practices. I've been paying attention to Michelle's work for many years now, and Michelle, I really appreciate you taking the time to share what you're doing in healthcare and uh, what you see happening around the nation. Welcome. Well, thank you. I'm very excited to be here and appreciative for the invitation. You bet. So tell me about your work and, and you know, what you're excited about doing right now. Oh, thank you. You know, I, um, I have been, Impact has been my company for almost 27 years, which is sometimes hard for me to believe. And when I started Impact, my specialty really was communications, marketing, public relations. And I worked at the time with authors. And um, I had the privilege of being exposed to the whole world of the likes of Wayne Dyer and Deepak Chopra and... Um, Barbara DeAngelis, and I did all the PR for the Whole Life Expo, so I was really introduced a lot to um, the the whole world of holistic health and healing. And then um, I started working with a psychologist who opened up a place called Woman One, the Center for Mind, Body, and Spirit. We were way before our time. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, things moved along, I started getting requests from authors saying, you know, we're really seeing how you're getting... Uh, people noticed with their books and I started doing book development and at one point I had 250 authors in my portfolio um, and during that period of time um, I decided it was time for me to take my own advice and get healthy and in doing so um, I discovered um, that I uh, and I was diagnosed with malignant melanoma first time I had ever been to um, a dermatologist in my life my children were small at the time and um, what I had discovered uh, through this diagnosis is that I was really given about three months before they felt it was going to be too far gone. So I went in um, within a month of my diagnosis and I had um, uh, surgery at a large academic medical center. And that experience was a pivotal moment in my life. I still kept the company impact, but my mission and my focus completely changed because I experienced firsthand how uh, a deficit of of emotional intelligence coupled with poor communication skills can really impact a patient, not just the physical pain, um, the emotional pain that goes along with being treated the way that I uh, was treated. So at that point in time, I decided to slowly wean myself off of working with authors and it became a quest for me to start working with hospitals. And since then, I've, I've had I mean, I have amazing team members who are all uh, clinically 
advanced and um, leaders in healthcare, and so they've helped guide me through the process of making that transition. So I've been working exclusively with hospitals now for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And often in the rural areas, correct? I found it interesting. I worked with a hospital in a town uh, called Galena, Illinois, and they were an old Hill Burton facility, um, and they needed to reinvent themselves if they were to survive. And at the time, I actually worked in academic medicine. I represented a university hospital, a large university health system in Chicago. And um, I was introduced to this rural hospital CEO. And as it happens, one of the reasons they could not get their certificate of need to build a replacement hospital was that they didn't have board certified emergency department physicians. In the rural setting, many hospitals have contracted physicians or they use their own community providers to rotate through the ED. So you might have someone who's a family medicine physician. Um, in this particular case, I even think someone was doing a rotation who was a podiatrist because they just didn't have any providers, wow. which we can just imagine, you know, what a, what a disastrous proposition that would be for patients coming in with stroke symptoms, for example. So I went to my academic medical partners and I said, hey, would you guys be interested in starting a pilot with me? What if we brought board certified ED physicians out to this community and they did, because their volumes were pretty low, 72 hour shifts. And then they could actually see patients who were admitted as well. And it was really the start of that combined hospitals program um, in, in rural. So the uh, platform was excellent. It was a match made in heaven. They've been out there now for, I think, close to seven years. Um, and so I fell in love with rural. And really, our mission right now is to help rural hospitals save themselves from becoming that statistic that we're hearing. You know, the NRHA says, a National Rural Health Association, their statistics show that we've got about one critical access hospital closing per month, or one rural mm -hmm. hospital. Wow. And in you know, our world, just because the hospital isn't there doesn't mean people aren't going to be sick. And, and so it's a really scary proposition. So we really help hospitals reinvent themselves. And the transformation begins from within. Um, you know, we started doing the work, helping to get communities engaged and informed and educated about the value of the hospital, the major economic driver. And that was an interesting wake-up call because we realized that while communities did know how critical of importance it was to have the hospital, their trust wasn't there. Their perception about the quality of care wasn't there. And so, therefore, someone living in the middle of uh, Wyoming is more than happy to make a day of it and drive to Billings, Montana for their care because they think it's going bigger is better. So we really work on the internal piece first, mm -hmm. get the teams strong and healthy and working well together and being innovative and interested in learning new ways to communicate with each other and then at the same time work on the community perception piece so it was just a it's a very it's a holistic approach of what i learned from working with these great authors over the years mm -hmm. applied in a hospital setting right and i would think really creating a sense of pride in the community for that that hospital so that they feel like they're a part of it as well. Yes, it's interesting. You know, I, I spoke last week at a conference in Arkansas um, and, and I I'm, I'm speak all over the country on this subject. You know, when we, we do community perception surveys and 
oftentimes um, I hear at the onset, I do a survey with the team and I ask, what do you believe your community believes about you? Right. And it runs the gamut. But a lot of times I hear, oh, we know they support us. Um, you know, uh, they like us for the most part, so forth. And if that were true, their volumes wouldn't be so low. Right. That all important HCAPS question, that very last question about would you likely recommend CEOs across the rural healthcare landscape scratch their heads daily wondering why they can't get that yes. And we have a whole problem called get the yes. And it's, and it is, you know, it's, it's every caregiver's interaction. It's from the time you enter the parking lot, walk through those doors. And um, I say, you know, they're not your patient until their head is in your bed. You know, mm -hmm. they are healthcare consumers and they mm -hmm. know they have options. And they're savvy. Uh, right. Rural, urban, doesn't matter. Healthcare consumers are savvy. So the, the status quo is no longer acceptable if a rural hospital, in particular this vulnerable class of hospitals, are to survive this roller coaster of, of transformation in our own bigger health system uh, across, you know, the ACOs and so forth. So do you see kind of a paradigm shift when you're working with the, the leaders and the the staff of hospitals to switch to uh, providing care in a different way for the consumer? Yeah, I, I really do. I mean, the work that we do is is quite intense. So the internal work, um, you know, I tell people there's a big push in this country for customer service training in hospitals. And I um, chuckle at that a little bit because, you know, the reality is we, we can't train people to be nice. I, we, I have held up a $100 bill at a session, and I've said, do you think if you paid your providers $100 more an hour, your nurses, $100, your, your maintenance crew, $100 more an hour, would that sustain them to be nicer to everybody? And the, the reality is when we do our workshops with team members across the spectrum, it's not more money that makes them feel better about the work they're doing. Everyone has a different way to express how they like to be appreciated, respected, valued, and money is hardly ever a part of the equation. We, we take that off the table um, because at the end of the day, it's attitude. So the shift really comes from recognizing what opportunities do I have in front of me today? What's the momentum that I can build? How do I invest in my team? You know, if you take a look at patient satisfaction scores across the board and then you compare it to employee satisfaction scores, you can see the connect, you know, the connection between the two. Lower scores uh, from the patient perspective, you will oftentimes see lower scores with employee satisfaction. satisfaction. Uh, that's very interesting. And so you're building morale, you're building teams as, as you're working with the people in the hospitals? We do, um, it really, culture transformation, I think, you know, it's also kind of a buzz term and maybe a bit overused and maybe a bit uh, misunderstood. I had a call this week with the CEO of a hospital. We, we just worked with the whole leadership team and she said, my biggest takeaway after a whole day, you know, a whole day with you, we did all sorts of research um, and I spent the whole day with her team. Um, and touring the community and touring the campus, she said the one takeaway for me was alignment. Uh -huh. And alignment doesn't necessarily mean I agree with you. Alignment means that I agree that we have to have an, a shared mindset of the approach towards 
and then fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. So one of the deficits we see, and this was a big story this this week about uh, communication, if you are familiar with this, about the correlation between miscommunication and readmissions and patient deaths. Um, I've worked with teams in crisis, surgical teams in crisis, um, OB teams in crisis, ER teams in crisis, and the number one root cause of their crisis internally is communications. So in our world, you know, and, and this happens at all hospitals, I can only tell you it's magnified in smaller hospitals, I believe, because of the, close, the closeness of the team. You know, you've got family members working with each other, in-laws working with each other, neighbors. Um, you know, it's, it's much more difficult. Um, it's not it's not exceptional, but uh, uh, but it's more difficult um, to maintain privacy in mm-hmm. a smaller setting sure. because everybody does know everybody. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we have to we have to raise the bar on that integrity and commitment level of privacy. So when we work with teams that we we have bad out you know poor patient outcomes. Um, and, or, or things not running properly in an ER, we have an ER risk assessment physician who works with us. It, everything that we have found has been centered around lack of understanding and poor communications. And with that said, I I tell people all the time, just because you can talk doesn't mean you're communicating. Right. Right. So we, we start off using a tool to help leadership teams first, because Culture is the shared observation of the leadership team. Correct. So we have to have leaders on the same page, kind of strip away all that competitive environment internally. Everybody has a very specific champion role. And we teach them about personality type and communication style. Because really, when we're talking about patient satisfaction, I am selling you on my services, right? Right. So I've got to be able to say things that are authentic and that um, are... uh, uh, means something to you. So we teach leadership teams how their communication style and personality type impact their work with each other and then impacts their ability to lead and mentor and coach their teams. So we use a, a tool called People Map. And anyone who's ever done Myers-Briggs, DISC, True Colors, it is really all the same premise that we've got a handful of personality types and we each have a different way, a different approach to communicate. So we teach that tool first. We also use a great tool called Strength Finders. Many people are familiar with it. And the other tool we use in combination, um, we, we have some of our own that we've created, but I find this to be kind of a power mix. We use the emotional intelligence assessment. And our, some, our team members uh, on, on Impact Team, certified leadership coaches, we have psychologists on our team, um, and we take a look at what we, what we learn from each team member participating in the three tools together. And from that, they have new information to shift their approaches, not change as a person, right. shift my approach. If I want to have a more effective you know, shift change operation here, you know, if I want my huddles to be super effective and make sure that everyone on the team is connected, then I've got to learn how my behaviors might be off-putting or engaging. Right. You know, how can I adjust those things? And then we bring it to the full team level as well. So those are just a few of the, the, the primer tools that we use for people to own their own stuff, look at their team members for their strengths, 
and then own their own personal weaknesses and work on those areas. Let's move back into um, your story. You said that your time when you were um, diagnosed with melanoma was a pivotal time for you. What was it that was pivotal in that in your experience that really has driven you have such a passion for communication and a passion, I think, for um, making sure patients are heard when they're telling their story. What is it that really sparked your experience moving you in this direction? even though it was so, it was 20, you know, 21 years ago, almost, um, I had, uh, this surgery, um, and I clearly, you know, I've been in communications my entire adult career. Uh, as a patient though, I transformed into someone who I didn't even recognize myself because the fear of being told you have cancer is just, you know, for anyone who has heard those words, it's, you know, your mind shuts down, your body shuts down, your heart is breaking, the fear is there. So when I showed up uh, for my surgery day, um, I didn't know what, I didn't know in advance what questions to ask. And this is back during a time when we only had, you know, uh, dial-up internet and AOL. So searching for (laughs) answers was a bit cumbersome. Mm -hmm. You know, today we, you know, we can talk into our phone and we're all brilliant at self-diagnosing today. And so I, I showed up for my surgery, and at the time, um, big academic medical center, I tell the story, it was kind of like the WKRP in Cincinnati scene when Johnny Fever goes to visit his boss in the hospital, and he was told to follow the blue line to this elevator and get off on this floor and follow the green line. And I'm telling you, that was, it was like off the pages of that script was my experience. And at, at the time, my, my, uh, my former husband, he wasn't allowed to go upstairs with me. So I was sent up, you know, on this maze um, to the surgical oncology unit and uh, didn't, I had no understanding of what was going to happen. And the thing is, um, when you say listen to patients, when patients don't know what to ask, I'm such a proponent of FAQs, proactive FAQs. What can you expect when you park? What can you expect when you come through the lobby? What you will see, who you'll be greeted by. We cannot over communicate these very important details that so many hospitals, unfortunately, uh, and and hospital administrators and teams take for granted because they come to work every day. They walk through the same door. It's a familiar territory for them. So this might have been Mars for me. Um, So I get to the unit and the door opens and the waiting room is packed with people. Um, But what was so shocking to me was that there were patients who, and I didn't understand this at the time, um, but they were very sick patients. As it turns out, their chemotherapy treatment room was next door and they had overflow. So there were patients receiving their chemo in the waiting area as I and others were waiting to be seen. And HIPAA wasn't even a part of our, you know, vocabulary back then. So I go up to the window and of course I'm also, as you can imagine, not a fan of the glass partition because that just is a huge signal that you know, you're a bother. I want there to be distance between us. I don't want to make that connection with you. There's no security reason for having it today. Most of the hospitals that are being built today to be patient-centered don't even allow that kind of, of, um, of facility design any, any longer, thank goodness. Um, and so I sat down, filled out my paperwork. They finally called me first name and last, brought me back, and um, the woman was in scrubs. So, of course, as a patient, I'm going to assume anyone I see in scrubs is a nurse. I mean, I, 
you know, we healthcare consumers don't understand the difference between what what um, color your your scrubs are or what the little dot on your badge means. So no one explained. You know, we are also proponents of the introduction, who I am, why I'm here, how I'm going to take care of you. So, you know, fast forward, I walk through, she says, here's your locker, here's your key. When you're done getting undressed, put on this gown and then sit on this bench outside the door. And it was a cold metal bench. And I had just the one gown that didn't give me a second gown to cover mm-hmm. my backside, mm-hmm. which again, no dignity in that. And the only thing that I was told I could bring, and it wasn't from the surgeon, it was from my dermatologist. She said, bring some music. You'll want to have some distraction for the day. I didn't understand why, but I was compliant. You know, I'm, I'm every physician's dream. I was compliant. I did everything they told me to do. So I sat on this bench outside, waiting, cold, nervous, afraid, alone. And people were walking by me, you know, not talking to me at all. And um, I was motioned to come into the room like you would be called into the principal's office, you know, kind of the wave of the finger. And I walked into the surgical uh, suite. And, of course, um, you know, if you've ever been in a surgical suite, it's cold. It's really bright. Uh, and there's just all sorts of equipment and tools and so forth. And she said to me, and I'll never forget the words, you need to get up on that bed, on that table. You need to get up on that table. And the word you need to rung to me and rings to me to this day because when we hear healthcare providers, I call everyone and working in a hospital a caregiver. I don't care where you work, financial services, surgery, doesn't matter to me. Um, for them to tell me what I needed to do, uh, and not offer me assistance. So I didn't, I couldn't get up on the table. So she moved a step stool over with her foot. I got up, sat with my legs dangling. She goes, you need to lay down. I laid down with my, um, my, at the time, my son who was very young, um, gave me a headset, you know, the big headset to wear. Cause we didn't have the earbuds and a little CD player. And I laid down with my CD player and headset and hands and all sorts of activities started happening. People were coming in, they had their masks on. I couldn't see who they were. No one introduced themselves to me laid on this table. And the next thing I know, I've got one nurse, I, I, you know, I'm guessing today she was a tech on one side and a tech on the other side. And they proceeded to strap my whole body from my forehead to my feet down to this table. And I can, I can make light of it today a little bit. I I said, this is what it feels like to go to the electric chair. I mean, that's, that's kind of the vision that I had was like, I'm being strapped to this, you know, to this um, bed. And then with that, um, I heard um, some other commotion going on. And they said, okay, one, two, three. And they flipped me over. I had no idea. Didn't tell me. Oh, my Had no goodness. idea. So, um, and, and so I, I said, I want, my head, I want my headset on. You know, so they got my headset on. And um, they pulled out. You know, I had my head rested on one piece. And they, they pulled out the section that was going to be operated on right, my back. right. And the next thing I knew, I felt the most unbelievable searing pain I have ever, and I've had quite a few surgeries in my day. I've never felt so much unexpected pain. And what they were doing was they were numbing up my back. No one told me I was going to be awake for this surgery. Not my dermatologist, not my surgeon, not a single person told me I was going to be awake. I had no idea. And so with that, um, I, you know, I had my music on and then all of a sudden my music stopped. It started skipping and I could smell burning. And as it turns out, it was my flesh burning. And the entire experience 
I was crying, you know, my eyes were filled with tears, my nose was all filled, and no one put their hand on my shoulder. No one looked under that table and said, are you doing okay? How, no one told me how long it was going to be. So, Connie, it wasn't about what was said. It was everything that was not said that day that made an impact on me. And um, it's not lost on me that I named the company Impact all these years ago because, you know, we have choices on how we're going to impact the lives of people we serve and care for. So when it was all over, I have no idea how long it took. I mean, it, hours, uh, it's hard to say. I, I kind of lost myself at that point. They turned me over, started unstrapping me. And I'll tell you, the one conversation I remember the most that they had was the team kind of um, razzing each other about the better snow conditions in Aspen and Vail because they were all getting ready to go skiing. That was the most important thing for them that day. Turn me over, unstrap me. I stand up. I collapse to the floor. My legs, I lost my legs. You know, I was just exhausted and emotionally drained. Someone walked me back to the locker room, said to get dressed alone. I had no help. I, unbeknownst to me, I had almost seven inches from my back removed and I was, you know, sewn up. And I just remember sitting in a wheelchair waiting to be brought downstairs and crying and vomiting. And then uh, another person, another nurse or an aide came up to me and she goes, you know, you really are overreacting. <laughs> and that to me was, oh, I mean, and I, you know, the, the whole experience to me was yeah. humiliating, um, just scary as all get out, you know, and still not knowing if they got it all. So I'm still dealing with knowing that I have cancer and then I was treated so, so poorly. So that was the pivotal moment in my career where I said, something has to be done because I wasn't, this is a symptom to me of a bigger problem. Right. I wasn't the only one in that hospital that day that was experiencing, I won't say a victim, experiencing the lack of awareness, the lack of emotional intelligence, the lack of communication skills. So back to what I said earlier, there is no training for that. This is developing the skills in human beings because I, I really believe, I don't care what you do in a hospital, it's who you choose to be, no matter what it is you're doing. So you can follow all the safety protocols, you can do the hand washing, the infection prevention and all that stuff. And there should be great emphasis on those things to keep our patients safe. But when it comes to communicating around procedures, around pain, around your experience, what you can expect. And then I say all the time, what, why don't you ask the patient right from the bat, what kind of experience do you want to have here today? And I, I sat next to a neurosurgeon stuck at an airport last week. And it was really interesting what he said to me. And he didn't mean it in any derogatory way. He was sharing what I feel to be a very valuable perspective and a learning moment for me was physicians um, are saying that the whole movement towards patient satisfaction is really a, a becoming a hindrance for them because th they feel that patients are expecting more from them than what they can give. And I think that there is certainly a lot of room for us to explore ways that we can be better at, at setting expectations for patients right. mm -hmm. and at the same time be better at how we choose to behave, speak, communicate 
uh, uh, with them uh, on a number of subjects. Well, I think it's the it's what we call a traumatic care. You had traumatic care. You had no idea what you were walking into, and it's not that difficult to explain to a patient what is going to happen and to say, we're going to flip you over before we flip you over. I mean, some of those just basic communication skills are important, but a traumatic care is also knowing where to park and knowing where to get on the elevators and anything that that lowers the anxiety for that family, that person. If you don't know what's happening, there's it increases your anxiety and that affects your experience. You know, it's interesting. We're doing a whole series on uh, working with hospital teams and breaking them up into the different ge- generational groups. Mm-hmm. Because not only does communication style impact that, it's just your your perspective. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed over these past few years is that we work really hard at rewarding caregivers for going the extra mile. So to your point, you know, not telling someone the elevator is over there, does that mean that I'm going the extra mile by walking someone? So I think that we have set ourselves up in a pretty uh, risky situation by by conveying that taking someone where they need to go is going the extra mile as if it was a outside of the scope of their job expectations. And I am not bashing, you know, uh, at all. I'm saying that we we have to, as healthcare leaders, we have to be better at setting those expectations. You know, going the extra mile might be going home and doing that patient's laundry. Right. <laughs> but with respect to walking them where they need to go, communicating in advance how the chair works, how the bed works, you know, being as helpful. And it goes as far as, you know, we, we take a look at uh, HCAP scores and, and the lowest scores that you'll see. And I've got the critical access hospital HCAP scores uh, from the last quarter of two, uh, 2015, um, you know, dietary and housekeeping. So one of the things I say to members of the environmental services team, and I just did a webinar on this week, when you go to a patient's room to clean, what it, how do you communicate with them? And oftentimes they'll look at me and like, we we, we, we clean, you know, we clean the room. If you were to say, Mrs. Jones, I'm Michelle from the hospital's environmental services team, and it is my job and my pleasure to keep your room and bathroom as clean as possible during your stay. So I'm going to do some tidying up now and so forth. That is not natural to many of the people on an environmental services team in the hospitals I work with. I have spent hundreds of hours doing uh, uh, observations. The day before, before I start working with a team, whenever possible, I go in as a total stranger and I just observe. And I have, I've, I watch the housekeeping staff because they're everywhere. They're mobile all around. In one particular case, uh, a family member asked, showed the member of the team on a piece of paper where he needed to be with his, with his parents. They were elderly parents. And she looked at him straight in the eye and says, I, I don't know, I'm just a housekeeper. And those were her words. So my message is, is that there's a lot of training and development opportunities for clinical staff. And then we take a look at customer. Many times my company is called when board members get complaints about neighbors who aren't happy with the way they were talked to when they call about their bill. So they want us to go in and kind of, you know, fix the customer service skills, uh, enhance the customer service skills of the financial counselors or the billers or whatnot. 
And, and so it's, I applaud the investment in development for staff members who are communicating with the patients on the backside of their experience, you know, right. when it comes time. Sure. Because you could have a great experience in a hospital and then you have all these complications with the billing and it changes the perception, it changes the experience entirely. Same goes for maintenance, same goes for dietary staff. We, we always say before you leave a patient's room or before you leave them, is there anything I can do to make you more comfortable? That is not intuitive for many personality types. Um, they don't feel it's their place. They aren't confident in their own communication skills. They may not know what to do if the patient says, yeah, I would like a, a glass of water. Well, I'm not authorized to give me a glass of water. I see that Betty is your nurse. I can see that on the board. I'm going to go talk to her and let her know that you would like a glass of water. So it is it's so much about staff development and staff empowerment. Right. It's not I was about training. Going to use that word empowerment. Right. Very good. Well, communication is essential, and one of the things that's been big in our news this week is opioid use and abuse. How do you? How does communication fit into that particular issue for you? I'll tell you, you're right. I mean, it is, it is a cri it's a crisis and it's a crisis in rural hospitals as much as it is in our urban hospitals. Um, you know, we have worked with several ERs and, um, there is, unfortunately, um, there is a, uh, you know, that hard line where there, the attitude is, is that we, we get these drug seekers or we get these, you know, they call them frequent flyers. And we really, really work at helping those caregivers understand that, you know, a, a derogatory approach is not a helpful one. And so I, I think what's really important is that um, hospitals, community hospitals actually have a better opportunity than large systems to really um, dial up their outreach and education to community partners. I think that's super important. We take a look at partnering hospitals with churches, with schools, with business groups, with employers in the area, and proactively go out and talk about the alternatives, talk about the problem, talk about the effect, the impact it has, and then talk about some of the solutions. And we take a look at starting weight loss, medical weight loss programs in rural health clinics and exercise programs in rural health areas. And this is not to sugarcoat those who are chronic pain sufferers and, and using these drugs for you know medically sound reasons, but we want the hospitals to really step up their ability to communicate proactively and be the voice of, of uh, real information instead of letting people kind of just go online and, and come up with their own conclusions. I mean, who better to educate the community than the trusted physicians who are working to serve that same population? And hopefully but, about health and wellness, not just about, you know, Exactly, exactly. And, and talk about the alternatives and talk about what they're restricted from doing. You know, um, we're this social media age is very interesting. I encourage every hospital I work with to do, and if they don't do it, I do it for them, a social media sweep and really understand what their reputation is for care outside of the, you know, what you wouldn't see in health grades or some of the other grading sites. What is your community saying? You know, we have community members who are, you know, using Twitter and Facebook live from an emergency room setting, talking about how they're not getting their, you know, their pain control, talking about how they're not getting, you know, how long they're waiting and so forth. So I think it's really important instead of having to be reactive about it, be proactive, 
and and really put a face to the, the hospital um, with respect to we are champions of health wellness and making sure that our community has options and alternatives that are safe and that we are compliant. I don't think that that you know we we know because we're in this business that compliance and the regulatory um, piece of this is huge, and the average person. I mean, they're just like you're not going to read the whole tax code. You're not going to understand right. what what hospitals have to do to be compliant mm -hmm. without being punitive. You know, you don't want to put a sign on your ED saying, you know, if you're in pain, don't come here if you're expecting a, a prescription. But we I think we could do a, a lot better with our primary care providers, um, providing them with, you know, more tools that they can use to educate patients. You know, it's a, that's a tough one, Connie, because, um, you know, Providers are, are mandated to keep their volumes up and keep their time with patients minimal and do all this new mandates for charting uh, using electronic health records. There, We need a balance. We Absolutely, need a better balance. Because really to deal with a pain, a chronic pain issue does take time. And if the provider can't do it, there needs to be somebody that can navigate that, help, help to navigate and... and uh, find out what the best best options for that person is. That's why, you know, I think, um, you know, hospitals, di different departments sometimes can fall into the trappings of being islands onto themselves, right? So you're the lab, you're the imaging, you're the ER, you're the surgery, inpatient, and so forth. So the internal communications piece is so important. It is, it is the lowest hanging fruit we have is to make sure that every person who works in a hospital understands what that hospital or provides so that we can refer. So for example, in an, in an in internal medicine office, you know, now we have the emergence, which is awesome, of health coaches, right? So they are, they are part of that, that medical home model, that really coordinated care. And so if you can, you know, really make sure that all of your team members are aware of those kinds of proactive resources that are available and be able to direct them. I say, you know, don't look at, Look, look at them as your employees, see them as the ambassadors they can be right, for the organization. And that's why engaging community partners is also so important. Um, one example, we have a program called Shop Talk, and we get all, as many hospitals who will do this. We have a very structured program where they can partner with every beauty salon in their community. And you may not, most people don't know this, but in a rural community, you could have 20 beauty shops. You know, one woman show, uh, you know, within a certain, you know, 15, 20 mile radius. And our motto is show them you care as much about their health as you do their hair. Women trust their hairdressers. I'm going this afternoon. Trust their hairdressers. And we see our hairdressers as prescribed. What? Once every four to six weeks. Right. Our root, our our interaction with healthcare. if you are not, uh, you know, if, if you are not familiar, you know, if you are in a in a well state is very limited. But even when you are a uh, chronic pain or a chronic illness sufferer, you still rely on that health care, that uh, hair care provider. So what we do is we arm hair salon owners and their teams with good sound nuggets of information based on a number of topics. Skin cancer is one, heart health, breast health, what have you. And we just 
plant, have the hairdresser plant the seed. Have you had your mammogram? Have you had your colonoscopy? Well, here's a little brochure on it, so <laughs> forth. And then there's some really great things that transpire between the uh, hair salons. Um, and we've had reports of one hairdresser who did actually find melanoma on a woman's scalp. We've had one where she um, learned about prostate cancer. And she, at the hairdresser's, um, you know, uh, insistence to have her husband checked out, as it turns out, because he was having the symptoms and he didn't want to go. So this is a great way to get other, you know, ambassadors and trusted community partners into the mix and, and help, you know, share some of these messages. And why not talk about pain? Exactly. You know, yeah. and not expecting them to be, you know, doctors, but provide enough information that will encourage someone to go seek the appropriate help. It's very creative. I love that idea. Well, it, it it's, goes back to expectations, too, I think, when it comes to pain management. Are they expecting to not have any pain at all or on the scale of zero to ten? Are they wanting to be like a five or, you know, what are the exp expectations along those lines? Um, you know, in our in the little the say book that uh, you mm -hmm. were gracious to look at, you know, we I take a look at communication. Um, in a very structured way. That's the way my mind works. And so when we when we structure communications, and it's not about scripting. Right. The scripting in itself has, it's a bit controversial in some circles. And uh, you, you, we're not robots here. So clearly we do need some guidance though, some, some really good go-to. And that's why we call it, you know, um, those excellence in an instant. Like people say, oh, I wish I would have said that, or I shouldn't have said it that way. So we take a look at structure around communications, and really it has to do with an introduction first. Then we have to take a look at setting expectations would be, you know, the next, right? So introduction, setting expectations, then providing the care. And while you're providing the care, talking, you're going to feel a slight sensation on your arm. You're going to feel a little prick, whatever it might be. Then the, providing the detail around that, you know, as much information as possible relaying comfort, and then affirming service excellence. So we have a kind of a platform for how, and it doesn't have to be my words, it's authentically your words, however structured in a way that um, there is that consistency. And when you structure it, then you don't have so much fluctuation between patient to patient. Now, the other piece of this is just as we teach caregivers about personality type and communication style to be a more cohesive, collaborative team, we also teach them how to use these techniques when communicating with patients. So in our people map work, Dr. Michael Lillibridge created this tool. There, he has four types, leader, free spirit, task, people. And again, if you know anything about the Myers-Briggs or anything like that, these will sound familiar. But a leader type is a visionary, sees the big picture, is competitive, likes to win, and you know, even though in a patient as a patient more vulnerable because of the state they're in, leader type patients like to be in charge. They don't need all sorts of unnecessary, but they like to be in charge. So giving a leader type patient options for how they can control or how what they, you know, what they can do to help themselves would be very important. Whereas someone who is more task type. The details are very important and walking through the details again and again, no matter what time it is on your clock, they want to make sure they've got all their questions and you will see patients come in with lists of questions. It's very likely that that person skews higher 
in the task type category. Whereas a people type, that compassion, that touch, that wanting to know about my family, about my life, my, you know, what's important to them, the feelings are so important. Um, and so we just, we, we want to provide caregivers with some go-to tools that could potentially help them, not just with patients, but with their family members. Um, we strongly encourage, you know, getting to know the care partners, the family members, or those who are there with them, and not dismissing them, just sitting in the chair over there. Bring them into the, they're in the room for a reason. Bring them into the fold of the conversation. Care and partners, get I love that, that terminology. I haven't heard that before. I'm, I may have to steal it. Care partners. Please. That's great. <laughs> it, I mean, and, and it just, it perfectly describes that person because take a look at the issue of readmissions, right? There are a lot of reasons why we've got heightened readmissions and the penalties are stiff and so forth. If that person who's caring for them is not prepared and can't employ some of the techniques that, you know, a caregiver, a nurse or a physician, uh, 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 MAPA, they have, they have such an opportunity to educate and empower a care partner at home. And that also helps with a traumatic care because it lowers the anxiety and it gives them a sense of mastery, giving them an opportunity to know how to help the person that they're with. And that's, um, I, I think when it comes to satisfaction, where it's not limited to the patient, it, it extends to how the family feels about the experience. So uh, I, I think that's very important. I also believe that those care partners have insight that is very important to the the care of the patient in other words um if if they're with when i was with my grandmother for instance who had pancreatitis she was very still and looked relaxed i knew that she was in severe pain because she'd never been still her entire life and so when the nurse said to me oh she looks so so relaxed and i i but that's not my grandmother and when there's something different from what um is the norm when we walk into a room, we might not know what that norm is because we've never seen this child before. We've never seen this adult before. And, but the people in the room can give insight. This is different. This something's not right here. And I think we, if we don't listen, it's a huge mistake. Yes. And, and it also, sometimes I think as, as the caregivers, as the healthcare professionals, we think that takes time to engage that, that care partner or to explain things or to educate, it takes more time. But in reality, it takes less time and it increases their care because they have help in the process. Absolutely. And I think, you know, prior to an admission, for example, you know, it's kind of like an interview to sit down. It's not just here's the bed, here's the remote, you know, so often. And I, I've, I've been hospitalized. I, I was, my daughter's had two C-sections. I was with her all the whole full time she was in the hospital and um, you, the shift change was just so interesting, the different personalities and her care and compassion level was altered based on who was in the room. And um, some of the nurses who came in were very engaged with me and others couldn't have cared less that I was in the room. And so we're talking about cultural shifts here. You know, I don't care about a hospital's mission or vision or value state. I don't care about any of that stuff because at the end of the day, most employees can't recite those anyway. What is our philosophy of care? Our shared 
philosophy of care and our approach to providing uh, wonderful, compassionate service and care. And the two can go, you don't have to give up one for, for right. the other. The other, that's so right. So you're right, embracing the care partner as a part of the care plan. And there was a time when we were all so scared to talk with anyone but the patient because of HIPAA and so forth. Now, as we move more towards the the, the need for medical home, good care plans after, outpatient services and so forth, we have to start to see, to your point, the extraordinary value of making sure that that care partner is a part of the team. They may exactly. not be on the payroll, but it's a big, big part pay of the it team. forward for, for ultimately for the outcomes for that patient, I believe, down the road. Well, and something else you mentioned in terms of shift change, when you have, when people are passing on information about a patient from person to person, that's a critical point where things can be said about a patient that um, that may have an impact on the next provider's uh, impression of the patient. And so it, the wording it most certainly does. Yeah, and the wording they choose is really critical. Behind closed doors, you know, we one of the things that we do, you know, because it's a high pressure job. I mean. Busy ER, rural or not, it's a high pressure, high pressure job. In you know, you know, uh, inpatient floor that's full, you know, uh, all day. It's a high pressure job, and so we we encourage our hospitals to create what we call wine cellar, which uh -huh. is just a not a, not a wine cellar, but just a place for them to go. But what's say what's in that room stays in that room, and also at the, it's not there to to bash or it's to come to your center and say, remember why I'm here and. You should be able to talk about a difficult case with your coworkers without any derogatory, uh, you know, eye rolls. I mean, I cannot tell you every time I hear problem patient or difficult patient, my head wants to explode because I and I and, and during shift changes, I've observed patients being referred to as a problem patient. I mean, I, I, I uh, challenge caregivers to explain to me what that means. Yes, demanding, upset, you know, no patient ever has the right to be abusive to a caregiver. Right. There's just, there's just no, I mean, there's a totally different category that we're talking about here, right? But when we're talking about someone who, who is more demanding, so what? So how do you respond? How do you adjust? Why are they demanding? Why are they demanding? Mm -hmm. Are we not being proactive? I mean, what can we do to help alleviate, you know? And that's why I think that initial conversation about, we want to provide you as a team, we want to provide you with exceptional care and an excellent experience. What are some of the things that we can do? And, and again, knowing that patients maybe not know, so we do things like this, right? So quiet at night, HCAP scores will show, and that, that very, it is very connected to pain control as well, because when you can't sleep, right? right. So, you know, mm -hmm. pain escalates. So we, we take a look at quiet at night, uh, quiet at night um, scores. And um, it, unfortunately, I mean, that's one of the lowest scores that you're going to see for us in the United States is that we, we, because of the bells and the whistles and the talking and the volume. So we do things like this um, before they're, before they are admitted. A great phone interview or a face-to-face, -face, 
um, Mrs. Jones, uh, now you're, you know, your hospital stay is not like sleeping at home. We know we want to make it as home-like and comfortable for you as possible in the setting that we have. The noise levels when you're trying to rest, and it's not just at night, the noise levels when you're trying to rest might not be, um, what you're accustomed to. So I'm going to offer you a couple things and I fly all the time. So I collect my United Airline overnight to Europe kit. I love them. I get a eye mask. I get earplugs. I get lip uh, balm. I get a little thing of lotion. I get a pen, a packet of tissue. It's endless. And I think about hospitals really working to establish their brand and convey. So why not give a patient a comfort kit? So, and, and we have noise canceling machines. So I'm giving you, here's our pillow menu. I mean, we take a look at the word hospital and the word hospitality and they share most of the letters in common. So why not give patients options? We, we take a, took, uh, we did a, a, an independent survey. So this isn't scientific. I walked into a, an, an imaging, a CT room and the back of the room said, if you're cold, ask for a blanket. And I asked the uh, imaging uh, manager, I said, how many people ask for a blanket? She goes, well, not that many. I said, do you know why? So the survey that we've done is that many of the patients don't ask for a blanket because they don't want to be a bother. Right. Then there is another school that for those patients who are living on a more fixed income with lower insurance, they think they're going to be charged for it. So that's another interesting finding. So I said, take the sign down. I said, offer them a blanket. And she goes, well, what if they don't want it? I said, then you take it away. If you can't, so she started offering the blanket right there, the warm blanket. Nine times out of 10, the patient took the blanket. Because mm. it was being offered to them. Mm -hmm. Instead of asking, ask for a blanket. If you need help, ask for it, so forth. So the call buttons are great. But when it comes to making sure we're anticipating needs, hourly rounding, you know, I'm sure you agree, hourly rounding is absolutely necessary. It's not just to come in and fill out the chart. And it's not just to come in to do the potty and position. Let's check in with their spirit. Right, right. You know, and uh, another thing about the nighttime noise, uh, there are a lot of sounds in the hospital that if you're not familiar with them, it, your mind, your imagination can run away with you. And that's what we found in pediatrics when we started talking to the kids about what um, the different sounds that they heard in the hospital. And uh, the veterans, the ones that were frequent flyers, yeah. uh, they knew the sound of the elevator. They knew the sound of the floor cleaner and the you know various things that happened. Even a blood pressure cuff, if you can't see it, is a very loud sound. And um, identifying some of those things for people who are just brought in straight from surgery. They wake up in a room. It's They don't know what floor they're on. They don't know what end of the floor, how far I am from the nurse's station, none of that. Um, and just helping people to get oriented, I think, is real important. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, how difficult would it be to do a little, you know, MP3 file of all the sounds you're going to hear in a hospital. And then you play those sounds. You know, I, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old grandson. And I think of that, that old McDonald wheel, you know, where you, right. where you turn right. it and then you pull it and then the sound of the pig and the sound of the cow. cow. So imagine yeah. what something so simple could solve, you know, such, avoid you know, such anxiety. I, when I gave birth to my daughter you know, 30, 30 years ago, 
the fire alarms went off mm. at night and nobody came in my room and I had a C-section. Nobody came in my room to tell me that I didn't have to go anywhere. So I'm trying to scoop myself up with the baby to go out in the hallway and no one said a word about it. It was, it was like a routine for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's not okay. Um, we did a grand rounds years ago where before MP3s um, and we had a professional person come through and record all those sounds and then we just played them and then had the people in the audience who were you know physicians residents nurses guess what the sound was and it, it goes back to what you said at the very beginning that when we work in a facility like that we are accustomed to it we don't even hear it anymore we don't see the signs that say employees only because we just go through the door we don't see a lot of the things that for other people it's like a neon sign or it's a huge sound so uh just i think raising awareness which is obviously what you're doing um will make such a difference for patient care and and patient satisfaction. The say book that you, I can highly recommend because I've been through the entire thing, um, is how do people get that? Is that available through your website or? Yeah, it's available through our website. And um, so they could just go to doitwithimpact.com and they can order it through there or call our toll-free number um, as well. And we have other tools. We have another tool that we've created and um, you can see it here is this called excellence in an instant. Yeah. And it is a caregiver's card deck and it's, it's um, really talks about behaviors and it, 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 we, we didn't do it as a, um, as an app because I do not want caregivers in their phones. Right. This has also created some significant <laughs> communication deficits in hospitals you go to any hospital today and walking down the hallway, you will see caregivers in their phones, sitting Tablets. in a cafe on their phones, mm -hmm. totally disengaged. Mm -hmm. So this is, I think, a significant challenge for healthcare leaders today. We want, you know, our providers are using iPads and so forth, you know, when they're interviewing patients, explaining what they're doing. Um, but we did it in a card deck because it's something that if you flip your card out of your pocket really quick, you can just take a quick peek at it. And it really just talk about, be behaviors. So in that moment, if I'm faced with something um, that is challenging, then I've got some some things in front of me to help me through that particular situation. Oh, it's, wonderful. It, again, it's not scripting. It's just conversational prompts and reminders about my tone of voice, my facial expressions, my mannerisms, um, my word choice. Uh, when you think about, you know, I'll try and get this to you we encourage hospitals to ban the word try from their collective vocabulary. Um, so it versus I will work to have this to you within the hour um, that sends a different level of a message about the, your level of commitment. Mm -hmm. It's just a small change. It's just a word small change. Shift. Yeah. And then, and, but it makes a, a world of difference. That's great. So that one is called, I wrote it down here. Excellence in an instant. I yeah, love that. Yeah, excellence in an instant. And we have different tools. So we have car, we have card decks. We've got screensavers. Um, we're working on. We are working on some apps that, again, that there. When you leave the hospital now, you know the interesting thing is in healthcare. Um, you know, people aren't sitting behind a computer all day, mm -hmm. and so we want to be able to. It's not again. You're not just. You're not just a nurse when you're on shift. You're and I have many nurses that I. Um, admire 
and, sure. and respect so much. You're a nurse. It's in your blood. It's it who is. you are. Mm-hmm. And so it's just really good ways for you to stay in tune with that. Um, you know, in that moment when you are off your shift, to be able to just look at some things that are relevant to you and how do you help, you know, do we go to work every day in a hospital and say, what am I going to do to help make it an unbelievably exceptional experience for my patients today? And that's how I encourage our, our healthcare teams to start their huddles. Everyone declare what they're going to do to make it a great day for the patients. Um, and, 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 and I recognize it sounds maybe simplistic, um, but a lot of times we hear, you know, what do you have everything you need to do your job? You know, the reality is I haven't been in a hospital where people don't have the tools they need to do their job. It's the heart the part that's hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anytime a caregiver is feeling hardened by the system, overwhelmed by the mandates, um, frustrated because of, you know, the climate change of, of healthcare and so forth, we have to remember why. It's the patient walking in for a surgery she's never had before. It's the parent with a, you know, 105 degree fever going, you know, having seizures um, mm-hmm. that's never been in an ambulance before. Mm-hmm. And it's so foreign for most people. And if we can keep that in mind and then really look at some practical tools, communication tools, and remember that communication is at the heart of all patient care. Right. Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I want people to be able to have access to your information because I could just talk to you all day and hear the different things that you're doing in, in hospitals and impact that you're having um, in, in so many ways. But he, here's the, for the listeners, here is the website. It's doitwithimpact.com. Do it with impact.com, all one word. And then the uh, the 800 number that you mentioned is 888-68-IMPACT. That's 888-68-6722. And we'll have that on our website as well. Thank you. And I... So- um, we're, we're, I'm writing blogs uh, every week, and we are putting together a book um, as well. So if you follow me on Twitter, it's MRB Impact. I, I welcome connecting with folks who are interested to learn more. And I learn a lot from the people who follow me as well. I get some really great information from them, too. That was my interview with Michelle Rathman. I am so grateful for her willingness to be interviewed on Faces of Pain Care. It has been such a pleasure to get to know her, and I look forward to our future conversations. Listeners, we would love to hear from you. Please visit our website at wongbakerfaces.org or email us at wongbakerfaces at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for making a positive difference in someone's life. another great episode of Faces of Pain Care. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss any of the new episodes. And be sure you check our previous shows for more information that will keep you informed and inspired.